Are you looking for answers to life's biggest questions like, who are we? What does it mean to be a human person? What does it mean to be a Catholic in America today? How can I be a prophetic voice in our culture? The Center for Faith and Culture at the University of St. Thomas in Houston now offers its MA in Faith and Culture online. This program transforms students by immersing you in the historical, cultural, and theological patrimony of the Catholic tradition so that you'll go out into the dominant American culture and leaven it with the good news. Students can audit courses, get an 18-hour certificate, or go for the entire MA program. For more information, Google Center for Faith and Culture, the University of St. Thomas. My name is Dr. Stuart Squires. I'm the Associate Director of the Center for Faith and Culture and Associate Professor of Theology at the University of St. Thomas in Houston. The Center for Faith and Culture, celebrating 25 years, brings the Catholic voice to the ongoing conversation about the meaning of life and the liberty and pursuit of happiness we hold in common as Americans. Today's guest is Dr. Chris Wolfe. Dr. Wolfe is an assistant professor of political science at the University of St. Thomas. He earned his Doctorate of Philosophy in Political Science from Claremont Graduate University in 2014, and he's been published extensively in journals such as the International Philosophical Quarterly, Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy, and the Catholic Social Science Review. First of all, Dr. Wolfe, thank you very much for joining me. Stuart, it is great to be here. Um, we are in uh, a political season. Uh, it seems like we're always in a political season. These these campaigns go on and on and on extensively. Um, but we're, it also feels like we're in a bit of a break because we're in the midst, hopefully the midst and not the beginning of the COVID crisis. Uh, but in November, we will be uh, voting. And so I wanted to sort of focus our conversation on politics uh, in general and uh, from a Catholic perspective. Uh, so let's kind of start from the very, very beginning. Um, why should Catholics participate in the political process? This may seem like an obvious answer, but of course, as you know, certain Christian groups like the Amish, for example, um, they don't participate in the in the sort of political realm. Uh, there, there never will be a, a an Amish uh, pre uh, presidential candidate. Um, why shouldn't Catholics sort of... Uh, take a, a page from the Amish playbook and not participate in the political process? Why, why should we participate? Stuart, that, that's a great question. I like the way you framed it uh, in terms of uh, talking about politics in maybe more than one way. Um, and, and so actually, I believe that there's several uh, different reasons that Catholics ought to be engaged in politics and ought not to follow what some Christians have argued in terms of retreating from politics. Uh, there's an article, or there's a book uh, by a, a journalist named Rod Dreher, which recommends just retreating from politics, the, the Benedict option. And, and I've never been in agreement with that approach. I, part of it just goes back to some old, you know, aphorisms and teachings that I was taught as a kid, as a Catholic, in terms of you should be, in the world, but not of the world, um, and that you there's actually, you know, scriptural basis for that. But there's also the commands from uh, uh, from Christ about 
loving others. I think that that's part of part of reaching out and engaging with the society, even in, in political matters, when there's a temptation to just retreat from it. Uh, we, we have certain compulsion to engage, I, I, I believe. Um, and so that's on a, a spiritual level, but on an intellectual, a Catholic intellectual level, I think that, um, that there's every reason uh, to, to believe that uh, the the retreat approach was not is not the appropriate one for a cath for someone with who has gotten Catholic intellectual formation because uh, we, we borrow a lot from uh, from Aristotle and Aquinas in our in some of our greatest theology in the Catholic Church and Aristotle described politics as the most architectonic science it's a kind of field or discipline that almost covers all human interactions politics in a way it's human relationships and of course human relationships matter and they're of interest for catholics that's why so politics in the broader sense maybe call it small p politics and maybe and maybe when we're talking about you know what's going on in washington dc we might think about that as big p politics uh small p politics of course, it's uh, it's it's in everything. You know, people say, "Oh, everything's political." You know, I, I just can't avoid the politics at at work or or whatever. And you know, there's there are some times when pe- maybe people bring in the big P politics and it become kind of partisan uh, in a way that uh, isn't helpful. But uh, you know politics in the bigger sense of you know maybe the way Aristotle thought about it we've got to engage in that I think um, so we are citizens of this 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 nation of course but through our baptism we are also citizens of the, the heavenly city um, how should Catholics sort of weigh these two identities obviously we see in the 20th century for example there's plenty of idolatry where the state becomes the center of uh, uh, of a Christian's life. We saw this Christian sort of trying to justify uh, Hitler's reign during Nazi Germany. So obviously we, we don't go that route. Um, at, the other, at the other end of the spectrum, we don't uh, reject, uh, again, terrestrial citizenship outright. Uh, so how do Catholics sort of balance these two? What, what is a rightly ordered understanding of, of our relationship to the state? Uh, the render unto Caesar question from, you know, from the gospel, Jesus said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar and unto God what is God's. And um, that is in some ways so helpful that Jesus said that. And it's earth shattering. It's a total, it's a very new way of approaching, uh, approaching life uh, in contrast to what, what the ancient world was like in traditional societies where religion and politics are totally tied up with each other and that's been there's been a there's been a um throughout history even after this even after you know the time of christ and after medieval times there's been attempts to make church and state one a monolithic thing but the catholic church has always had you know church courts and uh then civil courts they they've they've wanted to have more of a more of a separation. I won't. I won't. I don't like the use, using the word high wall separation of church and state, but but some kind of distinction between the city of God and the city of man, 
um, uh, is actually helpful to both church and to state, uh, I think has been the consistent Catholic approach uh, since Jesus said that. Um, and it's a really complicated um, relationship that, uh, and it shouldn't be a total separation, but it shouldn't be totally unified either. Um, and so the answer is, it's complicated. <laughs> and whenever it's worked, it's been complicated. Whenever it's worked well, it's been complicated. Um, the the church has not always had the warmest teachings on representative government, certainly since Vatican II. Uh, it, uh, the church has warmed up uh, to representative governments, whether talking democracies or republics. Um, uh, thinking back to, of course, Pius IX in the middle of the 19th century, he was adamantly opposed to representative governments. Uh, why not? In the history of the church, why 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 was the church uh, hesitant to embrace representative governments? And how does the church today, since Vatican II, thought about representative governments? Yeah, I think that there was a big backlash within the church to representative governments and to democracies after the French Revolution, because that just was a horrific event where the Catholic Church was persecuted by a government that had been its greatest friend in France. Uh, and they did not they did it not only in France, but all over Europe when Napoleon spread the revolution, so to speak. Um, you know, and so that definitely soured <laughs> the church on, on democracy uh, in that uh, later 1800s uh, period. And monarchy was looking better, and that was kind of the classic, um, classic uh, established church model had worked in the past. But there, there always has been in the teachings of the church some room, intellectual room, for democracy, for representative governments to be considered uh, legitimate. You don't have to have monarchy. Um, that's never been part of the catholic teaching there have been many catholics over the years who have argued for monarchy um you know we look at aquinas uh you know he writes de regno uh arguing that um in in his time he was arguing for monarchy but as an aristotelian uh aquinas agrees that the real distinction is between a government that serves the common good or not that's the real distinction and so the classic six regime types going back to uh, going back to Plato and Aristotle is that you have three good types of regimes and three bad types of regimes, three types of regimes that serve the common good and three that don't. So you have, and, and it's based on the one person in charge, a few people in charge, or many people in charge. So if we think about it, here are the good types of regime, monarchy aristocracy, a, a republic, representative republic, which is what we hope we have. <laughs> um, and then the three bad types are mob democracy, uh, oligarchy, and tyranny. And so that Aquinas agrees that, that that is the case, that you know if you have a republic, a representative um, uh, democracy that actually is looking out for the common good of all, not just the poor or the many, but all people in, in the society, then that's legitimate. 
and that's actually pretty good. Uh, and Aquinas would agree with that. Uh, although in his time period, he was saying, looks like monarchy would be a good option right now. You know, you've got different circumstances that your principles have to be applied in different ways. Um, and I would say in this time period, representative democracy is the good way to go uh, to serve the common good. So let's, let's uh, as I mentioned earlier, the Second Vatican Council, in, in many ways prompted by the American John Courtney Murray, uh, did turn to, to embrace at least certainly more than uh, Pius IX did to, to embrace representative dem, uh, governments. And you just mentioned that you think it's the best. Um, and I think we as Americans sort of assume, well, yes, representative democracy is the best. But as Catholics, when we put our Catholic hat on, um, should we fully embrace it? What, what might be some things in representative government that we as Catholics should not fully embrace? Well, Stuart, I didn't quite say it was the best. I said it was the best for these circumstances okay, this fair time. Enough. Yeah, fair so, enough. so um, as Catholics, we should be aware of that very point that uh, democracy is not the only way. There's some. There's other countries that have monarchies still, and that doesn't mean that they're illegitimate because they are not democracies. You know, some people have that approach. Uh, the a kind of uh, American exceptionalism quite often that says we have to enforce democracy that looks like exactly like ours or exactly like something else, or it's not legitimate. Um, and that's just kind of thoughtless. Um, so a Catholic thinker that I think a, a, a lot of on topic of democracy is, is Alexis de Tocqueville. And Tocqueville was pro-democracy in in America and in France, he ran for elected office, um, but he was he was paid enough attention to culture that he argued that you know some cultures they're going to be a different regime type would be more appropriate for them. So for in North Africa, he didn't think democracy was appropriate in North Africa at that time. Uh, he went to French French North Africa, Algeria, and Morocco back then, um, and so I think as Catholics um, we should. It's the universal church, and we ought to appreciate that there might be different forms of government. At the same time, like John Courtney Murray, we should look back to the American past and look for the natural law elements. They're in there, and that's actually one of the great things about our American history. John Paul II, in his uh, speech to to Lindy Boggs, she was Lindy Boggs was the new um, Vatican. Uh, representative for the United States in during Clinton's administration. And I really recommend that speech by JP2. Because in it, JP2 says that the great part of the story of your country is the ever enlarging um, ever enlarging um, sphere of uh, citizenship. That's 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 what that's what JP2 saw in American history and said Look, he looked at us going from, you know, just, um, you know, having slavery at the beginning of our country, getting rid of slavery, getting rid, get, getting rid of segregation, and uh, JP two just thought that was utterly impressive. And I think a fair Catholic from any country should look at the history of American, what's happened in American government, and say, yeah, that's. That's actually quite impressive mm -hmm. for, in terms of the natural law. Uh, 
you talk about natural law, which which I think, from what I understand, and I think you and I have talked about this outside of of uh, this conversation, how in the legal sphere even natural law is not sort of accepted anymore. Uh, so you talk about natural law. You talk about the government getting rid of slavery, uh, Lincoln, um, and this is obviously a good thing, right? We 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 recognize this is a good thing. At the same time, it it does usher in the sort of larger question about what should the role of of the government be in terms of the moral sphere. Um, thinking back to Leo the Thirteenth and Rerum Novarum, he said that the government should safeguard the morality of society. Of course, again, he was prior to Vatican II and sort of more in that Pius the Ninth vein. Um, should that still apply today? In other words, should Catholics be concerned in this country that if we have that separation of church and state, uh, that the government will advocate for a moral vision that is contrary to a Catholic? moral vision. So in other words, why should Catholics want the government to advocate uh, for social morality? Yeah, so there's a great amount of liberty in the American approach to things, perhaps more than what would be argued for by some Catholic authors. That is totally true. Um, And I think that um, in what we could say in in favor of the uh, American approach is that it's liberty for good things. Uh, And the American founders, they used to draw a distinction between liberty and licentiousness. Going back to Locke, even John Locke, who's seen as uh, not very um, uh, congruent with Catholic thought often, even John Locke said that there's a difference between liberty and license. And so liberty such as free speech the American founders believed could be used in licentious ways, bad ways that ought not to be tolerated by state governments. Even Thomas Jefferson, who's seen as a great civil libertarian, uh, very much in favor of free speech, even he, after protesting the censorship of his speech during the Alien and Sedition Acts, when he became president, he censored He argued that at the state level, states could still censor seditious libel. Uh, And he he was very clear about this. He didn't think that you should have a completely unrestrained liberty. So if Jefferson didn't believe (laughs) that you could have completely unrestrained liberty, I can show you passages from all the founders on that, Mm -hmm. that none of them believed in a completely unrestrained liberty. And what's guiding... What's guiding that distinction between what we say is license? Well, to be honest with you, morality. Morality is in a lot of natural law morality, especially when we're talking about obscenity, uh, harm, harmful speech in terms of libel, uh, other expressions like that. Um, you know, people would say that that should be allowed now. Libertarians would say that now. But the founders didn't believe that. And... Um, even today, in terms of our law, there is room to legislate morality. Uh, how much do you do is a matter of prudence. As Aquinas said, Aquinas said that uh, you know, if you try to make all the moral law into your human law, you might actually end up frustrating your attempt and making things worse by making everything that's sinful illegal. You'll make things worse by doing that, actually. And how would you police that? Um, and so, you know, so states 
states have a general grant of power, unlike the federal government, the national government, state and local government in America still is allowed to make morals rules on many tough topics. I think more topics should, they should be allowed to, to legislate morality on more topics, but that is uh, another issue. Are you looking for answers to life's biggest questions like, who are we? What does it mean to be a human person? What does it mean to be a Catholic in America today? How can I be a prophetic voice in our culture? The Center for Faith and Culture at the University of St. Thomas in Houston now offers its MA in Faith and Culture online. This program transforms students by immersing you in the historical, cultural, and theological patrimony of the Catholic tradition so that you'll go out into the dominant American culture and leaven it with the good news. Students can audit courses, get an 18-hour certificate, or go for the entire MA program. For more information, Google Center for Faith and Culture, the University of St. Thomas. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, of course, we are in a uh, voting season. We're in a we're in a campaign season. So let's move more towards the specific questions of uh, participating through the electoral process. Um, there are a lot of people, and certainly Catholics will say this, that um, because we live in a country that has separation of church and state, we should leave our religious views outside the voting booth. Uh, from the, the Catholic tradition, though, stands against that. So why should we as Catholics uh, bring our Catholicism into the voting booth with us? Well, I think there are practical reasons we can point to and then some theoretical things. But just practically, you know, what do you think would happen if we— if we did that, if we just try to not have our religion play a role at all <laughs> in our politics. Well, you get a politician who was completely amoral, I, I guess, uh, and didn't really stand for much of anything. And so do you really want politicians who are like that, who cut off the most important part of their of themselves? Who cut, a lot their, of people, cut their own soul out. But a lot a of people would say, yes, I want that. And I want that in the moral sphere when that politician is acting. Just go with what the majority says. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people say, yes, I want a, in the strictest sense of the term, an amoral politician. Why should we as Catholics reject that? What if the majority was religious and wanted something religious? And in this politician just reflecting what, what the public wanted. I mean, well, then they would still be... Uh, advocating religion mm -hmm. um the other direction i that this conversation usually goes is that we start looking at examples of politicians that we've liked and it's really hard to find a a politician from the past that has taken this completely amoral a religious approach martin well, luther king did not take the a religious approach well you know? I th the perfect example to me is now, as of what last week, the official candidate of the Democratic Party, Joe Biden, in both of his vice presidential candidates has said, I am a Catholic and personally I am against abortion because that's what my church teaches. But as a politician, I'm not going to advocate that in the public sphere. So he is, again, in the strictest sense, he's being amoral on that position and just doing what the majority or what he thinks the majority wants. Mm -hmm. So this, this man very well might be the president in a few months. Yeah, it's, I, I think Catholics should ask, do you like those decisions when you hear politicians do that? I'll give you another example. Uh, the last governor of California before the current one was Catholic, Brown, 
And he um, had the opportunity to not allow for the expansion of euthanasia and assisted suicide in that country, in that, in that country, California, that state <laughs> of California. Um, it was after the Brittany Maynard uh, in, case over there in California. She wanted to have her be, you know, have an assisted suicide. And, you know, he capitulated. Um, and, and so he expanded the murder of the elderly <laughs> and the ill in California. And he said, yeah, I know it's against my Catholic faith, but I'm just going to do it anyway. Right. I mean, how many of those type decisions have helped the Catholic faith at all? I, I don't think that that's um, – I can't think of any. I mean, I mean the, the, this line that, that many Catholic politicians in America have taken, it goes back to John F. Kennedy. As, as many of you might know, um, it's his Houston speech. That's that's why we should know about it. It's, it actually <laughs> happened here in Houston. And yeah. uh, John Hittinger here at University of St. Thomas, uh, he put on a um, a, uh, a lecture series, I believe, a few years back on an anniversary of that Houston of Kennedy's Houston speech, where he basically said, "You know, my my Catholicism will not influence my being a politician." And he did that to try and get people to vote for him in the 60s when people are still pretty anti-Catholic. But I and Archbishop Chaput would argue that was a huge mistake uh, for Kennedy to do that. And uh, both politically and for what he wanted to achieve. Uh, and uh, it's not the route that we should take today. The, the after, after Kennedy... The next big speech arguing this this line was uh, Cuomo, not Andrew Cuomo, governor of New York, but his dad, Mario Cuomo. He gave the speech at, at uh, Notre Dame where he did the same exact thing, said, you know, I'm not going to vote against abortion even though I'm Catholic, even though I think I say I'm against it. Well, that's really um, setting up in yourself a great division, a great uh, dualism within yourself. <laughs> to say uh, personally opposed but not going to actually act on it. And uh, don't you think you're culpable still uh, for, for the things you did in public life? Mm -hmm. I think you are. Um, when Catholics go uh, weigh two or more candidates, and at this point it's official, Donald Trump is the Republican, Joe Biden is the Democrat, um, and of course, there are other local elections. So when when Catholics consider two or more candidates, what are some of the general principles that they should consider when assessing candidates and for whom they should vote? I think the lesser of evils <laughs> can be appropriate, especially when you're dealing with a mainly two-party system. You know, so a lot of the complaints, are we, we don't have a party that reflects the fullness of the Catholic faith. This is true. Um and so, but how far should we whine about that? I, 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 I question because it seems like it, when people complain about the two-party system and that we're always having to choose the lesser of evils, it seems like, um, to, to, in order for our vote to matter very much, we could vote third party, but it's probably just going to be symbolic. Um, the alternative is parliamentary system. Parliamentary system you would have more than two parties um, and you'd probably have a small, you know, nowhere near 50% party that would, we could have a party that would have a lot of the 
the Catholic principles. Um, but um, ultimately, even a parliamentary system, somebody's in charge. Some one party is in charge. Uh, and you still have a lot of these same problems and issues, um, I think, even in the parliamentary system. You know, so we whine and whine about the two-party system, but look at politics elsewhere is what I'd say. And you still have a lot of the same same complaints, uh, although it's interesting being in, um, in the two-party system because the way it used to work was that when you're part of that large tent party, you would have compromise on almost all parts of the party. Uh, and so you would get half a loaf of what you wanted as a Catholic. Now, the political parties, uh, increasingly, we see polarization between them, and we see parts of the parties tugging at the corners of the tents and t- dragging them in certain directions. You see the the Democratic Party party being dragged in a very left direction on moral issues, economic issues, all of the above right now. Um, and I, I think and I think more polarization on the Democratic side than the Republican side, to be honest with you. But there is polarization in the Republican side too, for sure. Um, and so you have in some ways interest groups becoming more powerful than the parties. Uh, and uh, that's something to be something to be worried about. <laughs> uh, but when you have interest groups so much more powerful than, than the party discipline, you have the opportunity ultimately for new parties to develop uh, if people are just so unsatisfied with the parties they're in. You know, so, so we could have a, a third party at some point, and, and then at a certain point it becomes prudent to vote maybe for that one. Uh, uh, but uh, these are the frustrations of, of politics. Politics isn't perfect. We never we never get the full loaf. It seems like, mm. uh, but that's that's life. <laughs> yeah, that is life. That's not just democracy. That's yeah. life. Um, we're just sort of talking about abortion. Many Catholics will look at a candidate's position on abortion and vote accordingly, and that's 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 pretty much the extent that they'll consider any candidate. Um, should Catholics vote based on one issue, whether that one issue is abortion or not? Um, and if not, where should abortion be in the landscape of positions to be considered? Yeah, should it be? Should, should, should we vote for one issue? Like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm an, I'm an educator, so I could say, well, education's my thing, so I'm going to look at these two candidates' position on education and vote accordingly. Or mm-hmm. somebody could say, well, I'm really rich, and so I'm going to vote based on taxes. Um, so should we be uh, voting only on one issue, whether that is abortion or education or, or taxes? Uh, and if not, how do we sort of establish a hierarchy of what are the, the positions of a candidate, which, what's more important than others? Yes, this is a great question for thinking about how to vote as a Catholic. That's what you just said. That's, that's the question. And the, and the answer is uh, actually, yes, you should. <laughs> yes, you should, uh, I think. Uh, have maybe not one, but just a, a couple or a few issues that have, in a way, lexical priority over the others. Uh, and the ones that should have lexical priority for you do include abortion. They do include other, you know, inherent, you know, law. If you have a politician advocating for laws that are inherent moral evil acts, uh, then you have to vote. You can't vote for that person. I don't think. And, Can you and define I, for us what are inherently evil acts? Well, I, I, I would uh, d- 
defined them as you have actions uh, that are in some ways d- you could describe them as kind of like neutral, uh, you know, uh, hitting a baseball. Okay, but then that neutral act becomes uh, under a description of uh, something bad when you say you you're hitting a baseball into that lady's window because you don't like her. Mm-hmm. So so it's no longer neutral. It's now kind of colored. Well, we got some descriptions of acts, some actions that by their very nature, they're wrong. Murder, abortion, those words themselves, they have built into them that they're wrong <laughs> and that they're, it's inherently wrong. Um, and so um, we literally have laws legitimizing evil actions in our country right now. And I don't think you can vote for that. Um, now, there's going to be a list of the inherently evil actions and things that you shouldn't be voting for uh, in, in the catechism. And uh, um, and so that, to me, though, you look at that, and that, that really um, does have – it's on a totally different level than other political uh, prudential – prudential questions there's to me there's prudential questions and then there's um questions that uh are non uh non abridgeable yeah and and listeners can find that list of inherently evil actions in um, the u.s bishop's document faithful citizenship and uh also um in john paul ii's uh, evangelium vitae as well so if it, and it's it's a it's an extensive list so catholics should review that and and be aware of what that is um last question uh, and you sort of already hinted at this a little bit that it's it's often said that catholics don't or shouldn't feel comfortable in either political party um why is that and how do both parties fail to meet catholic social and moral vision thank you Stuart. um let's see well I haven't really talked much about economics yet, and that that is a big part of Catholic social teaching, and it's a big part of what divides the parties. You know, going back to the beginning of the Democratic and Republican parties, as we know them today, uh, when did they come about? How did we get here? Well, in general, you might say the Democratic Party has been the party of the working class man, Uh, and in general... Uh, upper middle class is more the Republican uh, constituency going back a long, long way. And so in general, the rights of labor have been more defended by Democrats and in general, uh, private property rights, rights of businesses uh, and freedom uh, to in business realm uh, has been more the Republican position. Um, so between those two, does the Catholic Church side, you know, 100% with either of those? Uh, no. Um, they, the Catholic Church does believe in the right to private property, and it also believes in uh, the dignity of work and also the legitimacy of labor unions uh, if we look at Catholic social teaching. So there's parts of the economic stuff in both. Uh, parts of the economic stuff that Catholic social teaching talks about is in both parties. Um, and so in some ways, to me, those economic questions, um, they're a little bit more prudential than some of the moral questions that come up. Um, but 
we always need to look at where is our country at when we're making the decision about voting and, and making a prudent decision about voting. Um, and because we have the print, we have principles, but we have to apply those principles by looking at circumstances. And sometimes there's no circumstance that would ever, you know, allow you to vote for somebody, <laughs> you know, given, given the principles. But, um, in others, you, you maybe you don't quite like his economic policies or her economic policies, but you maybe vote for him given the circumstances. And what, so what's the important circumstances that could come up in that situation? Well, what is the economy looking like at the time? Is, you know, is the economy really great and most people are doing pretty well off? You know, um, are, there, are we in a situation like the 1920s or 19, late 1930s where you know, we have the robber barons or something like that, you know, you need to pay attention to those circumstances. And here's another thing I, that I, as a politics teacher, try to get my students to think about. What are the circumstances in terms of our government, the health of our government, the health of our constitution? Do you have a candidate who is trying to dismantle our constitutional structure in some kind of way? You know, our constitutional structure is not exactly like it was back when the principle its principles were laid out in 1787 when they the constitutional convention in philadelphia it's changed a lot and in my opinion not in a very good direction in adding a huge bureaucracy uh that's that's been a major change that's happened uh and it gets away from some principles uh that i think the catholic church would say need to be there in terms of subsidiarity that's a huge Catholic social teaching is on subsidiarity. Our huge bureaucracy, which is not part of the original constitution, gets away from that. And so that's a circumstance that I pay attention to is what's going on with the fourth branch of government, <laughs> the administrative agencies. Uh, and, and so that's a part of the constitution you need to pay attention to. You should also pay attention to the um, – what what's going on with the state governments relation federalism's relationship between the state and national governments and then also pay attention to how our liberties are being interpreted by the courts and think about who is appointing people to the port courts what kind of judges do you want um because you might have someone who would interpret free speech in the way the founding fathers did or you might have someone who might interpret free speech to mean you can say whatever you want. It's complete license. And and so and that's going to be the our constitution which will be applied to all levels of government. You need to care about who's on the Supreme Court, I think. Well, Dr. Wolf, thank you very much for joining us and uh happy voting. Thank you. Thank you, Stuart. Are you looking for answers to life's biggest questions like who are we? What does it mean to be a human person? What does it mean to be a Catholic in America today? How can I be a prophetic voice in our culture? The Center for Faith and Culture at the University of St. Thomas in Houston now offers its MA in Faith and Culture online. This program transforms students by immersing you in the historical, cultural, and theological patrimony of the Catholic tradition so that you'll go out into the dominant American culture and leaven it with the good news. Students can audit courses, get an 18-hour certificate, or go for the entire MA program. For more information, Google Center for Faith and Culture, the University of St. Thomas.